This is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper on Sunday, March 31st, 2019. We're in the midst of March Madness. We are. And Daniel is a bit down in the dumps. For the last game. Um, but we'll talk more about basketball in a few minutes. It's been uh, another fun weekend. It started out with a bang in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I was... Uh, at uh, the Met with my students. Mm-hmm. It's one of those days when I meet students uh, in New York City at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, it was pretty fun, pretty exhausting, but pretty fun. Mm. And uh, one of the highlights was an exhibition of the uh, illustrations of an old, 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 old Japanese novel. Uh, Tales of the Genji, or mm. Genja, Genji, I'm not good at Japanese. Um, anyway, written in the 11th century by a noblewoman, original copy lost, but this was uh, illustrations from various copies throughout the subsequent uh, almost a thousand years. Really? And beautiful, beautiful uh, scrolls and uh, calligraphy, and uh, turns out I'm in love with uh, an illustrator, a Japanese illustrator from the uh, late uh, 16th, early 17th century, Tosa Mitsuyoshi. A okay. beautiful thing. So, you know, it's, it's, that's the reason you go to the Met, right? Mm. Um, not just to see the old beloveds and visit old friends that you've loved for years, this, that, and the other thing, but uh, to find, uh, in you know, serendipitously, new things you never thought of loving. And I accidentally went to that, uh, went to the Asian wing, and uh, accidentally stepped into this exhibition and fell in love. So that was fun. The students were great, and uh, they put up with my dragging them hither and yon. In the museum. And I hope they had a good time. I'm sure they did. And then, uh, also on the weekend... There's more? We had... Well, we we had a delightful lunch at the Lovin' Oven in Frenchtown, didn't we? Yes. It's our thing to go out for a nice breakfast and then have a walk on the canal path or Mm -hmm. something. And uh, we really... We did well. Uh, Lovin' Oven. Okay. Kimchi fried rice. Yes, that's the new thing. And... uh, a nice little uh, eggs and bacon with sweet potato biscuit. Wow. And the mm. coffee's good. <clears throat> All right, good. I didn't realize so, you were so excited about that. Good. Well, I like it when brunch goes well. I've had a lot of mediocre brunches in my life. Mm-hmm. But I like the combo here. Uh, we find a, a couple of good places we like right next to excellent walking mm-hmm. spots. Okay. So we can walk it off. Mm-hmm. The no guilt brunch. The no guilt brunch. Okay, well, we'll mention other places when we go there. Um, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, let's get back to basketball because uh, it's hard to get that off our minds. Um, the uh, NCAA tournament, we're in the throes of it now. We're not going to give you, you know, the latest developments because 
this is not going to be heard for a few days. Oh, why not? No, let's not. But Auburn but, just won. Oh, please. And uh, you had Kentucky. I had Kentucky. It doesn't make any sense. But, but I was rooting for Auburn. No, don't tell me that. Because Yeah, well, I was. But here, here, because he, I like Charles Barkley. Yeah, so the last, he did go to Auburn, we should tell people. He was in college, nicknamed the Round Mound of Rebound, which goes to his weight. Um, so, uh, last night's game was uh, an eye-opening game, which we did have the right team. Virginia uh, played Purdue and beat Purdue. Uh, and in what was a kind of an amazing game that went to overtime, as did the Auburn game. But it was my mother was telling me about it. Exactly. Such a riveting game. What did your mother say? You, you were on the she phone. She said it was very exciting. It what was did, back and forth and back and forth. What did she say when you told her that you had, had gone to sleep with a few minutes to go? She didn't seem to believe me. Yes. And uh, she kind of glided over that. She said no one left their seats. That's right. That's word for word what she said. No one left their seats. And she was right about her son Well, I left my seat. Well, I didn't leave mine. Well, I was conflicted. You wanted Virginia to win. Uh, forget for who you wanted to win. financial reasons. It was a riveting game. <laughs> and uh, it was a riveting since game. my brother went to Purdue, uh, well, the Granger well, family was looking for Purdue. Let, let me make a couple of points about this because we have to set something straight. Number one, um, the uh, all you've heard, not all, people keep hearing about Duke. You know, Duke's very good. I, I'm with that. Zion Williamson, the great player. Okay. How come they just keep winning by a smidge? Well, n- number one, Duke has been winning but disappointing because you can't be the greatest team of all time and keep winning by one point in the last second. You're on to that. Very good. Although it makes for exciting It makes for exciting, television. but you don't look like a great team, number one. Number two, Zion Williamson is not the second coming of anything, honestly. They're certainly not the second coming of LeBron James. He's oh, not. I like that name, Zion. It's, it's a great name. I think it's helping him PR-wise. He's not even the best guy on that team. The best guy on that team is a fellow named R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett? That's right. But the best person in the tournament is yes. neither of them. Up to this point, it is a small named Carson Edwards, who played with Purdue last night. Purdue did not belong in that game. They were not didn't have competitive personnel with Virginia, who's close to the number one team in the country. Carson Edwards, notwithstanding. Carson Edwards scored 42 points. Let me put that in perspective for you. The rest of his team scored 37 points. So that's bad behavior? That's, in your mind, cheating if you win just because you have one good guy? No, that's my point. What I'm saying is Carson Edwards has been the best player in the tournament. If you score 42 points in a game like that, when before the game the other team knows you're the only good guy on their team and the only guy they have to stop in Purdue, and he scores 42, which in a pro game is like scoring 50 or 55 because the game's longer and there's more scoring, it's incredible. And after the game, when they were talking about it, and, and Charles Barkley, your buddy, was saying, this doesn't make any sense. How could Virginia let this guy score 42 points? He's the only guy they have to stop. They can put every player on him, and they almost did. But he was taking such long shots that you couldn't cover him. They were taking two right, dribbles. I'm confused. Pe- so do we not like Virginia? Do it's not like a matter of who I like. Uh, no, 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 no. It's no. Not, this has nothing to do with what I like. I'm telling you the best player in the tournament is it's Carson Edwards, or it has been. And, and so Virginia has the worst coach? No, I mean, what, no, no, where no. are we going here? I'm talking about Carson Edwards. Focus. That's, okay, right. on Purdue. Okay. Right. Talking about one thing at a time. Now, in, in terms... See, men can't multitask. No, I can, but I can also single task. That's the amazing thing. So if we're going to talk about multitasking, just to finish one thing, let me go over one thing that's... I, you know, your mother is impressing me with her ability to follow the games, but I'm not sure if she got this play because they didn't even explain it on television correctly. The way that game turned last night was that 
Virginia was going to lose the game to Purdue. Virginia was down by two points. Right. Uh, excuse me, by three points. By three okay. points, by two points. By three points with five seconds to go. Okay. And Virginia was at the foul line to shoot two. So if they make both shots, that's nice, but they lose the game by a point. And the ball goes over to the other team. They lose. Dang. So, so they have to do something. Okay. So they make the first shot. Now they're down by two. And in the next play, the ball, is, the shot is missed. And the rebound goes back to Virginia. And they throw the ball, uh, you know, from almost the full court to a fellow who's near the basket, shoots at the buzzer, puts it in, ties the game. In other words, uh, they pull the, za- the victory from the jaws of defeat. How did they do it? After the game, they were talking about it. Kenny Smith was saying to Barkley, the two commentators, people practice that tap-back play all the time. It's not about the tap-back play. He missed the shot on purpose. Maybe Smith is saying this. He missed the shot on purpose to give the kind of rebound they needed to get the rebound to take the other shot. To the cherry pick. Exactly. Crazy. Okay. A crazy play, and right. that's what got him to get going. So, of course, they could have thrown it to him standing outside the three-point no, line. No, and no, he no. Could no. Have thrown, it's, it, and it, it, it they sound, would have won. It's sounding like you're not even following. Yes, if he had made a three-pointer. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Oh, that's so, good. It's almost like you're not listening. <laughs> I try. <laughs> you're right. But, uh, you know, it's hard to make those long shots. You're right. A long shot would have won the game right there. Oh, you're, you're your mother's daughter. What can I Always say? Always thinking. Yeah. Always. Oh. Thinking. All right. So the basketball is driving us crazy. But but go ahead. So you, on the other hand, not not in any way affected by this. You are. That's uh, it about basketball. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You still picking Duke to win? Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. Duke or Virginia. I, I can't even talk about it. Go on. Go on. I'm too overwhelmed. <laughs> I'm too overwhelmed. Oh. <laughs> No, well, you think you're overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, how do you think the Louvre at Abu Dhabi is feeling these days? Yeah. Uh, you know, we talked a while ago uh, about a, uh, a Leonardo painting of Salvatore Mundi uh, that sold, you know, one of those mysterious Leonardos that's rediscovered uh, over the last few years, uh, sold uh, in the 50s for like a thousand bucks. Uh, then recently in 2014, sold for 75 million, and then in 2017, sold for 450 million to a Saudi prince. Yes. Uh, with the idea that it would be on display in the Louvre, Abu Dhabi. And that's what puts your museum on the map. That's what makes people want to come to your museum right. when you have a Leonardo, especially one that uh, notorious at the moment. And it was supposed to uh, be on display as of September 2018. Not there. Not what showing do, what up. What do you mean not there? How could it not be there? Uh, it's... Uh, it, it, it has... No one knows where it is. This is like one of those television shows we're watching. It was, it's it like was a... you know, it was sold, and then it went to uh, a conservator who, I guess, I don't know, who was supposed to go to a conservator, yeah, and uh, never got there, and the appointment was canceled, and he doesn't know anything about it, and nobody knows, uh, nobody a, is saying. Let me tell you where right the now, heck it this is. This sounds like an episode from Whiskey Cavalier, that crazy <laughs> show we're watching on Wednesday well, night. That's it's a terrible show. Let's not even talk about it. It's embarrassing that you're letting people we've wa- no, we've watched that. But um, the idea is now people are getting nervous. Are they? Remember, there was a controversy. Is it a real Leonardo? <clears throat> 
Right. Uh, or not. And uh, so now is there – somebody have – more proof that it's not a Leonardo? Uh, is there egg on everybody's face? Uh, what is the deal? Or is this just, you know, uh, more publicity can never hurt a situation. But anyway, front page of the New York Times, missing Leonardo. You know, the last time that happened? In the 1930s when the Mona Lisa was stolen. Really? And you know what happened to the Mona Lisa. She's the most famous painting in the universe. Yeah, but know what happens that's happened first? They have to find the painting. Right? No, you have to have a lot of press. Well, you got to get. Then the you pa- find the painting. Then you find. <laughs> but you <laughs> do. You, people, but you do, people will be dying to see. But it. you do have to find the painting. They haven't found the painting yet. One step at a time. All right. All right. It's all about PR. So That's look, what around. We're look around. <laughs> look around. <laughs> it might be underneath something. Any painting you have, scrape off the veneer. It could be a Leonardo underneath. Okay, so. Um, the baseball season started. There's a sport that makes some more sense. As opposed to watching these teenagers run around in college basketball, these are seasoned veterans, the, the baseball season. Uh, and uh, the Times actually did a very nice job, very nice job, I thought, uh, summarizing sort of briefly what things look like in the various leagues. And uh, Wait, 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 wait. You're saying something nice about the Times sports? Time sports? I like writing? to do that. It's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. Okay. The exception that proves the rule. And they had uh, the Times, I think correctly, has identified uh, Houston as the team to beat in the American League. Although, of course, there's going to be Boston and there's going to be the Yankees who are going to be competitive. Uh, uh, in the Times write-up, um, they do focus a lot. And I think it tells you something. In their analysis of the teams, it kept coming back to pitching. It, it, you know, the league goes back and forth with hitting and pitching. It's all about starting pitching. And, of course, they like Houston starting pitching. That's why they like them. They like Boston's. And that's where the Yankees fall short. And that's where I think the Yankees are going to fall short. But other teams are kind of up and down in terms of what kind of pitching they have. Uh, but uh, slight edge, slight edge to the Houston Astros. In uh, the National League, uh, the Dodgers are miles ahead of everybody else. And in case you haven't noticed when, while you've been following at home, the Dodgers have been in the last two World Series representing the National League. They haven't won, but they have been dominating the National League. And it looks like they're going to dominate the National League again. There seems to be no team that's really been a, in a position to, uh, to challenge them. You know, there are, uh, the, the, strangely, the team that's won as many games as anyone over the last four or five seasons is the Chicago Cubs. But okay. Chicago Cubs have been slightly dysfunctional over the last year or two. And word is that if the Cubs don't win it this year, they're going to fire their manager, Joe Madden, which is unbelievable because just a couple of years ago, he was the greatest manager of all time. Wow. So uh, the Dodgers look they have, like they have a tremendous edge. So there's a lot of statistics here. I'm not going to bore you with statistics. I know the numbers can get a little dull. But there's one statistic that just floored me. And uh, it's more of a statistical oddity. But let's see what kind of reaction I get from Miss Granger here. Okay? They, the f- person who led the league in home runs last year in the American League was a player named Chris Davis. Okay? Who plays for the Oakland Athletics. All right. Someone's going to lead in home runs. He had 42 home runs. That's very good. He's a very good hitter. But here's what's amazing about him. Over the last four seasons... He has hit 247. That I'm not saying in the aggregate. Every single year he hits 247, the exact percentage. Okay. You know what the odds are against that? It's like a zillion to one. Okay. Because that's a percentage based on all his hits, as all his bats. 
every year it comes out exactly the same. That's almost impossible. And that's the excitement? Isn't that something? Not that it's too high or too low. No. It's just it's a the statist- same? It's a statistical oddity. The great thing about sports, about baseball in particular, it's all about the numbers. Hitting 247 four years ago is unreal. Okay. okay. I, can see, I see you want to think about that. And that's why you like the article. That's why I like the article. All right. And yeah. it's not because they said anything nice about the Mets. I'm going to come back to the Mets later. Okay. I will right. speak about the Mets later. I know um, there is so much to speak about. Well, the Mets have an interesting team. And I, I, I'm going to talk in particular about the Mets and their history at the in the latter part of the podcast. You can look forward to that. So here's a weird story. Yes. From the New York Times this past week. The Dog Suicide Bridge, a gothic mystery in gothic stone. Yes. And it's about a bridge in Scotland, in Dumbarton, Scotland, where there have been many instances of dogs who are walking across the bridge with their owners suddenly seem to see something, they stop, they stare, and then they leap over the side of the bridge, often not surviving it, but sometimes surviving. And uh, nobody can figure out why. And there are many stories, maybe, you know, animal behavior people, etc., say, well, they smell... Um, mink. Mink. Right. Animals, right? Uh, nested nests of minks and other animals, and they're so overcome by desire for a bite. I guess they head that way. Or some people say they're not really trying to leap off the bridge; they're trying to leap up on the um, railing, which is quite wide, but it's angled, so they slip off and slide in. Other people seem to feel it's a ghost. And it's the ghost, uh, the widow who lived in the manor house nearby. It's not the ghost and of a she was so overcome by grief, she still roams around, apparently. But um, it is odd. There are all kinds of estimates about how many dogs. Some people say 500, some people say 300, some say very many. Hundreds uh, of dogs killing, I mean... Hundreds of dogs sleeping in over the side. I mean, you know... It, you might say, well, the logical thing is going to be some sniff of an animal, some scent of a mink. But there are a lot of minks, there are a lot of scents, and there are a lot of dogs getting killed, generally speaking. There are a lot speaking. of people going over bridges. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, it's, uh, this is bizarre. It is very bizarre. So stay tuned. Maybe there'll be future developments. So there's no solution. The Times is on it, though, right? Well, I think you got to keep your dog on a leash. Well, in Scotland. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they don't do that. Uh, yeah, maybe. You know, that is part of the problem, I bet. I think uh, leashes is the next thing. I think a lot of people walk their dogs off leash. In fact, we were in uh, Central Park this week. They're off the, the leash until late in the morning. And all the dogs are running off the all leash. about. None of them leaping off overpasses. Right. Now they, they have all they can do to catch up the tennis balls. How many minks are in Central Park anyway? Well, maybe not enough. <laughs> maybe not enough. Okay. Restaurants. Restaurants, yes. Uh, so an op-ed piece by Frank Bruni. Mm-hmm. What's the best restaurant if you're over 50? Mm. Um, and uh, Frank Rooney's an interesting guy. He has been the f- restaurant critic right, he was. for the Times. He's been writing general op-ed for the last few years. Yeah, yeah. But before that, he was uh, just he, a food guy. He's a pretty complex guy. 
Uh, he might be. Um, he wrote an interesting piece. I don't know if I talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. A long personal essay because he actually lost the sight in his right eye. Mm-hmm. He woke up one morning and it turns out he had had a stroke, so to speak, in his eye. Mm. And uh, suddenly didn't have the sight. And he was coming to grips dealing with that. Uh-huh. And... It was it was an interesting. Essay. Well, he certainly. I thought he was a very good food writer. As an op-ed writer, not not as good. But but what what's what's well, what this he writing personal about essay was very good. Anyway, so back to what yeah. restaurants you go to. Yeah. And uh, he's detailing uh, a couple years ago getting invited to an opening of the latest greatest cool place mm-hmm. in Washington, and uh, he comes out of it just not that thrilled. Right. And it's got all the bells and whistles, everything you're looking for. The world is thrilled, mm-hmm. and he's not. And he's you know what uh, you're really looking for at this uh, point is actually comfort and quiet and the people you know and love. And uh, he, he talks to a variety of people uh, over 50. And he says, you know, it turns out uh, it's not just your body that changes. It's not just your sex life that changes. Uh, your restaurant taste changes over 50 as well. And he talks to people including, you know, Mo Rocca? Yeah, I know who he is. And uh, he's an actor, TV journalist, um, t- host of a podcast, yeah. etc. Yeah, you hear him. And he says, you know, actually, um, he likes to be in a place that is quiet more like a library mm-hmm. than a restaurant. In fact, somebody said, if somebody said to him, you know, they're serving food in the library, he'd be the first to go. Right. Ina Garten, yeah. or Ina, I should say, Ina Garten and her husband. Uh, where do they like to go? People, she says, people are always, you know, saying, what's, you know, the latest, greatest place? Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't know. Because they go, they find a place they like, they go there all the so, time. So they go there. And, and they will go there for like years and then move on to a new place. Right. Because and he, she will try new places occasionally. Right. And that may become the place. But uh, she also agrees. You're really looking for a place where you are welcome, where you are known, where you are treated well. And Danny Meyer, the famous tour, says uh, that uh, James Beard was famous for saying, when people ask him, what's your favorite restaurant? He said, it's just, you know, it's pretty much your favorite restaurant, the place where they love you the most. Well, I, I look, I think, it's, I wouldn't quite apply it that way. But I, I, what I would say is that uh, you want a welcoming place. You, uh, you want a place with very good service. And it's very mindful of, of the customer. And Obviously, if you find that, you're going to keep coming back and get even more comfortable, and that makes it your your go-to place, and that's fine. We have friends who love to go to restaurants and rarely go to the same restaurant again. They very often, you know, I think uh, you might have the taste for... That was a great meal, but where's the next great meal? Yeah, I, I, and uh, I, it's have, not going to be as much fun yeah. because we already know well, it. Well, I'm, look, I'm not saying no one has that point of view, but in terms of the point of view that these folks have, and I think we have too, is you want to be a place where you're made comfortable. And now, now, obviously, we go to Deanna's. We like Deanna's a lot, and the service is wonderful, and Armand is the bartender, and we like the food, so we recommend that. Um, but uh, in terms of going to a new place, we went to a new place last week. Which is this very fancy place? Milos. Milos. Greek fish restaurant. Right. At on West Fifty Fifth Street. Right. And you had recently read an article 
about uh, the restaurant tour. Right. And he was a very interesting guy, very modest beginnings. Uh, and he stabbed. Worked his way up from nothing. Right. Established his business in Canada, which he found very welcoming as opposed to the United States. But uh, got, had, had a couple of restaurants which looked like nothing. But his big thing is he wanted Greek food, authentic food, and the freshest possible fish. He had a single-minded uh, focus on quality. He developed a following there, and it extended to the United States. And he has his place near city center, which is on 55th Street between 5th and 6th. And... Uh, it's it is not a cheap restaurant, not inexpensive. It's well, very expensive. Let's say we we frequently go to city center, and we, we we've been walking by Milos. Say one day, looking in one day. No, we haven't even been saying one day. We've yeah. been saying that's too fancy for us, right? And so we finally bit the bullet and went because you were so charmed by this article, right? And I did remind you that we've actually been there many many well, years. Well, I don't remember, but in any event, and but the real point is number one. It's not a it's not a fancy place just to be fancy. It's it's a very nice place, but it is all about the fish, and they have all these fish from the Mediterranean, and they actually walk you to the display of all the fish that are nice, and you pick out your fish, and they tell you about your fish, and you know you're often sharing a fish. They're just and it's very simple. You not fresh with fish. another table. With no, your, with, with, your, with your, right. your table. I don't. Who knows? <laughs> but probably not. And they say that we want that fish. In our case, a balada. We'll grill it. It'll be for the two of you and fine. And we have some very simple Greek salad with that. But they also had live scallops. Right. Like gigantic scallops. And enormous in seafood shell. display. There is no yeah, question yeah, about it. And yeah. uh, it was very impressive. But on top of everything else, it is wonderful service. Okay. They treated us like royalty. They did, and they treated us like family. And and it's the first we time we've ever the been there. The fanciest people there. No. We were, most of the people seemed to be European. Uh, they were speaking languages that we had some trouble identifying, right? And uh, fine, but we were just simple Americans, and we were treated extremely well. We had a very nice meal. Yeah. So so that's a place I would go back to. Yes, but we'll save up. We'll save up. You know, it's funny because Bruni in his article mentions that he has just had a fantastic meal at one of the new places at... Um, Hudson Yards? Hudson Yards. Yeah. Um, Thomas Keller's place. Yeah. And I don't know if you say tack... Uh, no, but I know what he's talking tack about. Tack room or T-A-K room, I don't yeah. know. But anyway, it's a steakhouse. Yeah. It's, it's really old-time comfort food. Right. They have Oscar... Uh, you know, uh, Oysters Rockefeller. Uh, they That's have all the time. Yeah. The plateau, you know, where you serve uh, um, seafood, raw seafood on a tower. But that, I'm sure that's and very expensive. They have fettuccine Alfredo. Wow. They have short rib forest mushroom lasagna. But get this the eggplant parm, $30. Yeah. The lamb chops, well, $75. That, 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 that's the story. That's... The roast chicken, roast chicken, yeah. $68. That's amazing. And he says, so anyway, I mean, this is absolutely, it's not, you know, a late-breaking, earth-shattering right. cuisine. Yeah. It's really, really comfort food. Yeah. And um, and Bruni does say, you know, if he could afford to, he'd go back there every week, right. like the garden. But it's too expensive. But, um, Listen, if, you if, know, that, how if you get If you that? get a roast chicken, $60, the chicken must have gone to college or something like that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. But Hudson Yards is going to be a new thing. Uh, Milos, the place we went to, was opening a place in Hudson Yards. Everybody's running to Hudson Yards. We'll see. But it's for a certain demographic. And I think this uh, tack room must be for our over 50 demographic. Yeah, yes. Looking for, sure. for, you know, accessible, comfortable. Yeah, well, it might be over 70. 
But yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Broadway shows. So we didn't see a show this week, but we have some that we're seeing coming We've up. We've been reading about a lot of stuff. Well, first of all, we're, we're going to see, uh, I think we're going to see on Wednesday, The Cradle Will Rock at the at classical stage. Uh, CSC, Classic Stage Company. And uh, that will be interesting. That's a show that was done in 1938. Orson Welles did it with his group, Mercury Theater. Uh, it's a call to play with music. Um, sometimes it's, it's performed as will be performed then uh, just with piano. They have a very interesting cast. We'll give them a fuller report on that uh, next weekend. But there are other things coming up. Um, like, um, like uh, what, what would you like to talk about? Uh, you want to talk about Ain't Too Proud, or what What? what, what would you like to speak of? Well, Ain't Too Proud, the, the Temptations uh, play, musical, yeah. the biopic, as you like to call it, yeah. uh, got a terrific review. Right. And that uh, has uh, our buddy Jeremy Pope, right. who was the star of Choir Boy, mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. So uh, even though I don't believe in jukebox musicals, to mm-hmm. me they're usually boring, this does sound pretty darn terrific. So maybe it would be fun to go to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're thinking about that. Also, I was reading about uh, Rachel Chavkin, who was the director of uh, the um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, yeah. which was a, a pretty fun musical we saw with the family. And that became the center of a whole lot of controversy in social media, etc., um, but anyway, I mean, it was a real up and down kind of situation, but, um, anyway, she's, uh, in previews, she's the director of a show called Hades Town, and, uh, that is based on the ancient myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, and, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, might be interesting. Anyway, she seems like an intriguing young talent 30 years old, still reeling from everything that happened with the Great Comet. But uh, she says she has learned a lot. So, you know, maybe that's... Yeah, I'm, I'm not that excited about Hadestown. What I'm more excited about is the Lehman Brothers uh, show. Uh, is it called Lehman? You have the title right there. Um, the Lehman Tri- Trilogy. Ah, the Lehman Trilogy, which takes place at the Park Avenue Armory, if I recall correctly. yes. And uh, what's fascinating about it is the story of these two, these Lehman brothers who start out a long time ago in Europe trading commodities. And it, uh, it goes on, you know, the family goes on to all kinds of things, including eventually selling uh, bonds. Uh, and but of at course, at a certain point, they just have like a clothing store, right? But it, 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 well, it's a long. It, that's why it's a trilogy. It's a long story, but they end up a, a Wall Street powerhouse. Uh, and of course, the story of Lehman Brothers is that it went out of business in two thousand eight. It was a huge financial catastrophe, almost brought down the entire financial system of the United States. So it sounds like a tremendous bore. To no, me. no, it's fascinating, and uh, not only is it fascinating, it but gets a critics pick well it's <clears throat> the times ben but Brantley the, 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 the times. point is that it's it, it the amazing thing is it covers so many years and there are so many characters and so much going on and yet they only have three actors it's three people on stage it's ben miles adam godley simon russell beale three english actors they portray all these parts and they stand there in the armory in a fairly stark space and they cover all this ground and the Times says it's amazing. And I bet it is amazing. Is it amazing or is it just the Times wanting to be <coughs> we amazed? We haven't seen it. No, no. It's not the okay. Times wanting to be So amazed. maybe we have to try to see that. Yes. Park Avenue Armory. We've All never right. done that. We're having trouble getting off the schneid with some of these uh, plays. 
We keep saying we want to see him, and then we don't get well, to them. So one of us has you know. to get to New York. But yes. Oh, oh! I was just in New York. Yeah. Um, and then a big article in the Times Magazine section about Glenda Jackson, who is starring as King Lear. Yeah. And uh, again, um, I would I would say the buzz is pretty good. About that. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, but she's an interesting character. Yes. And remember, we went through her story before talking about Three Tall Women and how she, you know, was a, a movie actress, a theater actress, and then takes off for 23 years and is a member of parliament. Right. And uh, but she's interesting. And she is one of those women who doesn't doesn't take tea for nobody's fever. Yeah, I don't know. It's your uh, phrase. It's she, not mine. She doesn't suffer fools gladly. Yeah, she's kind of a tough 80-some-odd-year-old. 80, 80 and so uh, that that's the story. But, so we'll see. It, again, it sounds like an amazing interpretation. And uh, the article is one of those articles that's saying, you know, you know, this is tremendously yeah. meaningful yeah. today. Yeah, I, we'll I, all be able to relate to this. Let me come back to my point. And here's something. What? Directed by Sam Gold. Okay. Which you should be interested in because Sam Gold directed the Encore's presentation of Cradle Will Rock. Oh, really? But that was the summer. In 2013. But that doesn't mean much to me. But the the, the deal is that, uh, first of all, that was a full production with Patti LuPone. You couldn't miss with that. The thing was, and I should mention, you reminded me, Sam Mendes is the director of the the Lehman Trilogy. Uh, I'll give a will see to the Glenda Jackson thing. The truth is, I think it's kind of... You'll give a what? Will see. Oh, we'll see. Yeah, because... you were giving it a gentleman's seat. No, uh, that too. The point is, you know, I'm not clamoring to see uh, King Lear no matter who's performing it, honestly. That's a long play. That's a big deal. So... uh, And three hours in the uh, Park Avenue Armory. Couldn't be better. Talking about bonds. Bonds. Maybe stocks. Uh, All right. So you had something about Italian handbags before we get back to the Mets. Well, back to business. Yes. Um. Interesting article in uh, the Wall Street Journal yeah. on Saturday uh, in the business section about Italian handbags. Yeah. Now, here's the deal. Handbags are super profitable. Right. Uh, accessories um, are generate a third of all revenue from personal luxury goods. Handbags in particular boast some of the industry's biggest profit margins since they are expensive, but they don't take up much space, and they don't have to come in different sizes. All right. Mm, that's now, good. Here's what was interesting to me. You know, handmade in Italy. Right. Okay. You know, I get the feeling that everything is just coming out of random factories in third world countries. But no, people are still willing to pay for handmade in Italy from the big brands, Gucci and Prada and Burberry and, you know, and all these great brands, they all come out of a little town, not so little, 50,000 people outside of Florence, Scandici. And Scandici has the manufacturers, has all these people with sewing machines making these uh, handbags like crazy. Now, the brands are getting nervous because uh, many of these businesses, uh, the manufacturers, are old-time family-run businesses. And as you know, the younger set doesn't always want to continue in the family business. And uh, it's uh, 
to in order to maintain the level of quality uh, that they have, the band, the brands like Gucci have been buying up the little businesses, uh, its subcontractors. Gucci has bought 12 of its subcontractors over the last year and intends to buy eight more. They just built a huge uh, uh, manufacturing space of its own, 37,000 square feet, um, uh, and are planning to build more. And they're beginning to train people. They're also scaring the other manufacturers a little bit because they're luring away mm-hmm. a lot of their trained personnel. Yeah, but what's interesting is that, number one, the quality matters, and number two is that the craftsmanship that uh, these folks have can't be replaced. And yeah. as a result, the uh, the handbag makers you're talking about are in demand. And this is a bright light in the Italian economy. Right. Okay, Good. That uh, wages have been rising 10 to 15 percent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, generally, Italy is pretty stagnant well, in terms of it. It's, it's a surprise. It's, a, lot of it's a surprise. So um, it's uh, really a very interesting situation. And uh, these uh, companies and the brands, the big brands, are working hard uh, around <clears throat> the clock to train new workers. Well, you know, what interesting, another interesting thing about the photographs is totally anecdotal. But all the photographs they show of people working in these factories, yeah. women. Okay. Interesting. I, I just you think of historical? factory work, you think uh, of, you know, men in... Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, you might want to test that because those could just be the photographs. But uh, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I could be totally wrong about yeah. this. But it's interesting when you see, yeah. and they're all in white coats, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, quite uh, yeah. nice looking. It's impressive. All right. So um, the Mets. So not so impressive. No, no, that's that's wrong. So here's the deal. Number one is before we get the Mets of today, here's what's notable. And again, I have to credit the Times. Uh, they it's the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of the Mets' amazing year, 1969, when they won the World Series, and the Mets had a special section on that. And there will be some celebration during the Mets uh, campaign this year of that team. And why is that amazing? Why it's amazing was the Mets were the doormat of the major leagues. They were introduced in 1962. And they didn't win their first game until their 10th game. They lost 120 games their first year. They were in last place every single year for the first eight years or so, or six or seven years. Then they were in second to last place. And then we got to 1969. So, and then things changed on a dime completely. And why did they change on a dime? Because they got a young kid named Tom Seaver. And Tom Seaver turned the team around. Now, you can't turn around a baseball team with one guy. But he changed the way people thought, along with the manager, Gil Hodges, and they got a whole lot of pitching. And suddenly, they went pretty much from worst to first, as they like to say. They got into 1969, and they started winning some games. And it was weird, because the Mets were always a last-place team. And by the way, I should tell you, the Yankees were a last-place team, too, then. And uh, the reporters started showing up in the Met game. And, and when they were 23 and 23, after they played their 46th game, they asked if they were going to open a bottle of champagne. They were 500 this late in the season. And Seaver almost threw the reporters out of the clubhouse. He said, we're not here to be mediocre. I don't know what the heck is. This isn't the old Mets. This is my Mets. So when you, um, in your infancy, watching the Mets during this year, yeah. did you know something big was happening? Well, first of all, I wasn't in my infancy. I was 15 years old. And it was a sort of prime Seems time. Seems like infancy down no. here. And no, I, we were just kind of wide-eyed. It was the strangest thing of all time. But you knew it was different. 
There was no question this was different. And then, then something strange happened. In June, they had a big game against the Cubs, which were the league-leading team. And in the critical game, Tom Seaver got on the mound to pitch. And he not only beat the Cubs, he had a perfect game in the ninth inning. They destroyed the Cubs. The game got broken up, but they won the game. And he was dominant. And from that point on, the Mets played like gangbusters. And let me give you an example why this was so weird. This was so weird. Let me just... In, in September, when they're in the middle of the pennant race, all right, this is, they couldn't hit, okay? The one thing Bill Hodges did was he platooned everybody. He platooned several positions, which was new then, but they still couldn't hit, but they could pitch. So they Wait had, a minute. I don't even know what platooned everybody means. They would play righties against left-handed pitchers and, and lefty, left-handed, hitted, left-handed batting players against right-handed pitchers to give them an advantage because you can hit the opposite side. And no one thought to do that before? They didn't do it as much because the Mets had no stars. They just had one or two stars. They're mostly a defensive team. So they had a game in September in which Steve Carlton, the Hall of Fame pitcher, struck out 19 Mets. It set a record for most strikeouts in a game. The Mets, on Sabota, in addition to striking out twice, hit two two two-run home runs. Mets won the game 4-3. Struck out 19 times, won the game. In that same month, in September, the Mets had a doubleheader against Pittsburgh. They won both games one to nothing, okay, which is incredible. They scored two runs and won right. two games. Can't hit, but they can pitch. And that means they have good defense. Yes, and they have good defense. And Tom Seaver was uh, aided by uh, Jerry Kuzman. They were the two pitchers on the team, and the two best pitchers. Uh, during the stretch run, the last 40 games— Kuzman's record was eight and one. Seaver's record was nine and zero. Okay, they just never gave up runs, um, and they raced right by the the Cubs. And people were going crazy. They get to the playoffs. They play the uh, the Braves. All right, and what happens in that? That's the first one team to win three games. And the Mets had so many pitchers; it was unbelievable. The Mets win the first two games. They get to the third game. Um, the game is sort of tied. It's a critical moment in the third inning. The Mets replace their pitcher, Rico Cardi, who's a superstar for the Braves, comes up to hit. They ask him. Uh, he never heard of the pitcher who's coming in. They say, what does he throw? Fastballs? Uh, someone says fastball sliders. We don't know. Turns out the pitcher is Nolan Ryan. The Mets have Nolan Ryan on their bench. They bring him in the third inning. Of course, Nolan Ryan has become the Hall of Fame greatest fastball pitcher in the history of baseball. Guess what? He beats the Braves. They never saw him before. They never heard of him before. He couldn't break into the Mets' rotation. This is what the Mets have on the bench. They beat the Braves. They get to the World Series. They beat the Orioles, who were a great team. And they win. And the town goes crazy in a way I've never seen any, any town go crazy over sports. I can say there were three things going on in New York and many other places in 1969. One was the moon landing during that summer. The other was uh, Woodstock, you know, the Festival of Love, the concert. And the third was the Mets. And I'm not going to tell you the Mets was the biggest thing of those three, but it wasn't the third, all right? (laughs) So uh, it was just beyond. So here we are. Uh, the Mets are going to celebrate. Wait a minute. Can I just ask you, do you remember like every game? I remember the game Sabota hit the two home runs against <laughs> Steve Carlton. I was listening to the game in my bedroom when right. I was supposed to be sleeping. Oh, yes, I remember it. So it's we like under the covers with the transistor Let's radio? not get, I don't want to get into graphic detail with under the covers. <laughs> the fact of the matter is it's pretty close to the truth and it was a pretty small radio. But here, here's the thing. So now what do you got? The Mets are here now with a new GM, 
Brody Von Wagenen, who's they describe, he's a he's a guy who used to be an agent. He comes from outside the normal uh, group of people who would be a general manager, and they call him the communicator in chief. He can't stop talking, and they tell this story about when he he said he. he for an experience where he felt he talked too much. He said he was at Stanford. He played baseball. His his girlfriend, who was to become his wife, was a diver at Stanford. He was invited to go to dinner with his girlfriend and uh, her, her parents. And he sits down to dinner and uh, turns out uh, her parents, her mother is there with her new boy, boyfriend, who's Neil Armstrong, uh, who walked on the moon. Okay. Right? Well, uh they don't, uh, he finds that a lot of silence. He talks the entire time, the entire two hours he's talking. He said he had diarrhea of the mouth. Every quiet period, he said, I filled it. And then they got out uh, of dinner, and then he got alone with Molly, his girlfriend. He said, well, did I screw that up? She said, oh, I forgot to tell you, Mom and Neil in particular, they don't talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but here, not. here we are. Here we are. The symmetry is too great. You have uh, Brody with Armstrong, the first man on the moon, yeah. all right? In the here and now, oh, oh, okay? Oh, so you're saying... We're, rec- we're, we're, <laughs> we're recreating, we're revisiting the magic of 1969. All the stars are aligned. This is it. This is going to be the best year. They have the same pitching, or close to the same pitching they had then, with the top pitchers that they have, uh, with uh, Syndergaard and DeGrom. Uh, it, you know, they don't hit that much, but they hit enough. I think, uh, let's just say... Um, From your lips people, to God's ears. Uh, you know, nothing's impossible. All you right, can't count them note, out. That's on right. that note. So we're looking forward to the baseball season. Looking forward. Yes. All right. And uh, I can't follow that, so I'll just have to say, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper again next week. Come on back.